Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and with me is former Atlantic intern and current chairman and CEO of HBO, Richard Plepler. Intern, is that fair? No, 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 I was an intern, but you were I, a low I, level. I was wrong, wrong, wrong. I had my own very tiny consultancy. How many employees did this consultancy This consultancy had one employee, yeah. that was me, yes. but I called it RLP International. International, because you had a I passport. Thought, I thought big. Uh, Richard, so we're going to do a lot of stuff here in the next uh, little period, but but let's start with with, with something that I, I, I need to just uh, I need to just do. It's ten years since the Sopranos went off the air. Yeah. Um, what happened at the last scene? Just tell us now. No, they, you have inside. Obviously, no, you have inside well, look, knowledge. I'll tell you what I said to David Chase, but I can only tell you. By the way, to our millennial listeners, The Sopranos David, was a was very a, popular was a television show, show on the show. HBO network. <laughs> it worked for us. Um, so I thought what the denouement really was saying uh, was pretty simple. You reap what you sow, and his penance was a life of eternal vigilance, that he would never, ever again be able to move around with impunity. Focus on the good times. Don't be sarcastic. Isn't that what you said one time? Try and remember the times that were good? I did? Yeah. Well, it's true, I guess. So you're saying he didn't get whacked. You're saying it was just... That's what... my interpretation. I, rem- I said, you'll have to ask David. He's the, he's the creator and auteur. When I raised this theory of the case with David, he did look at me and said, that's pretty good. So there's a, recent, there's a decent chance that David Chase doesn't know what happened at the I, end. I will tell you, it's a, it's, this is a true story. They sent me the uh, DVD of the final episode. The scripts were embargoed, so we didn't even see the scripts. And I was so excited to watch the final episode ahead of everybody else. And, and of course, it ends how it ends. And can you swear on the podcast? Um, yeah, you may swear on the podcast. I said, fuck, they screwed up the thing. Right. They forgot the <laughs> last thing. And I literally picked up the phone and called Eileen Landris, who was the producer, and said, you guys. Where's the last where's three minutes? Cut? They said, no, 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 no. That's the. Did you think then the, that that was genius or idiocy? Well, the truth of the matter is I had grown so accustomed to David's genius um, and so accustomed to trusting his uh, impeccable instincts that I remember um, waking up the next morning and saying, man, that's good. Yeah, but incredibly unsatisfying in the moment, I got to say. But boy, he, you know, like any great artist, David wasn't playing for the moment. He was playing for time. Right. Well, and I'm still legacy. thinking about it. Look, we're talking about it. We're talking about later. a piece of TV. Um, and it remains uh, a, a perennially asked question in a Q&A with any audience. Yeah. So tell me what happened. So yeah. that's if you're if you're an artist of David's caliber and you still are provoking thought 10 years later, um, you've done your job. So Richard, let's go all the way back. So you did this thing for The Atlantic and then you became chairman of HBO. Did anything happen in between? Yeah. So just, just no, run, you know, look, run my, us through. There, my, there's a little politics yeah, in look, there. My uh, journey here, um, you know, JFK said the best things in life happen by accident. So I had an idea um, right after the first Intifada started as somebody who cared deeply about Israel, 
that the coverage of the Intifada was reductive and that all you were seeing on American television screens was the imagery of young Palestinian kids throwing stones and Israelis firing back at them. And the idea that I had was that only by bringing context around this complicated story could you illuminate for an American audience, a European audience, how deeply emotional this conflict was, but how potentially insoluble it was because you had these two competing narratives of history. And so I decided that it might be a good idea to make a documentary, which wasn't an apologia for in any way for Israel. So I went around trying to see whether anybody uh, had any interest in doing this. And I came to Peter Kunhart, who uh, is now one of the most successful and prolific documentary filmmakers, does a tremendous amount of work for HBO. And I said, listen, I don't know anything about documentary filmmaking. I know a little bit about the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. And I think I have an idea for the way to tell the story. And so we teamed up and we made this documentary for public television called The Intifada, uh, Search for Solid Ground, The Intifada Through Israeli Eyes. And um, it was nicely reviewed. And that really was a catalyst for bringing me to HBO because the then uh, CEO of HBO, a gentleman named Michael Fuchs, was intrigued by what I had done. HBO. What year is this? 90. Well, I made this in 88, 89. I think it went on in 89. So this is about 90. I ended up coming here a year and a half or two later. Okay. And the wonderful thing about coming here in those years was, um, you know, it it was HBO in Kuwait. How big was it? When you well, got we here. probably, there, a lot of people think the tipping point to the modern HBO was The Sopranos and Sex and the City, and those certainly became iconic parts of our uh, modern narrative. But the truth is that the real tipping point of the modern HBO was the, the Larry Sanders show. Uh, and what, and what Gary did, um, was I think he showed the creative community that you could do something with a defining original voice. Um, that hadn't been done anywhere before. Hey, now. There, you just said it again. And, you know, I asked you not to say it. <laughs> I can't say it off stage either. It doesn't even exist. Use hey, now in a sentence, Hank. Uh, hey, now. That was real funny. That was so revolutionary compared and to sitcoms, right? Of the, absolutely. Of the day. And, and there was nuance and subtlety. And, uh, there but it was, was no, knowing. There was it no was la- inside. There was no was- laugh track. He garnered a tremendous amount of attention and commentary. It was, it broke through. And I think that that served as a catalyst for a lot of creative people looking at what was happening at HBO and saying, my goodness, A, they'll take those risks. What year is this again? Uh, Larry Sanders, probably 92, 93. And it was not long lived. Right, Larry probably did four years. Four, four years, I guess that's long lived. And and um, that was really the tipping point. Tom Fontana came with Oz and uh, David Simon with The Wire, and um, then Sex and the City and Sopranos, and um, you know it became catalytic. So I want to do. I want to talk. Well, ultimately, what I want to get to is your Shimon Peres impersonation. Obviously, I'll do it for you. Um, the one is to talk about uh, the difficulties of being in a business. In which you, a business that you invented it so well that everybody now comes in 
to the business. I mean, Netflix is making 47,000 shows next year, for instance. I want to do that. But before we do the sort of the challenge of being uh, the inventor of a field that then explodes, yeah. uh, I want to do the, the, the brand issue because so, I, by the way, I don't want to talk about bundling and unbundling. Whatever. I'm, it's so boring to me. I'm sorry. I know it's your whole life, but you no, know. No, actually, no. that's not right. The truth is that what you, want to, right. what you want to talk about. Oh, now you're going to def- tell me what yeah, I'm talking I'm gonna about? I'm going to tell you what you want to talk about, and I'm going to tell you why you are on point. Because well, all right, then the, keep going. the reason that we are continuing to grow and that we're on track for our biggest year of growth in the 45-year history of our company is because we have stuck to our brand promise, which is the curation of excellence. All right, well, let's let's stay there. And I want to talk about that for a second. Let me answer the question, and then you can ask it. How about that? That's fine. So I think you could curate excellence. You could do it across a lot of different categories, and you you would... Build a brand in doing that that people would be willing to pay for because even though there was a lot of product out there in the television industry, if we could be known for elevating the quality of work, we were going to draw writers and producers and actors who understood that we were great gallerists. And what ends up happening is... And then um, your walls are so beautiful that people will pay to go into the... And people will understand of equal importance, well, there's a lot of great paintings out there. When they come into our gallery, they know that they are seeing really outstanding work on the walls, differentiated work on the walls from uh, what they might see, you know, sprinkled uh, around in... In, in different places. Again, I always say this isn't a zero-sum game. There's a lot of very good work being done out there by competitors, by others. That's fine. We concentrate on making sure that in our gallery, we're putting up beautiful work. Because we believe that talent is sacred, when they come into our gallery, the way we market and promote and work with them is quite bespoke. And You know, look, I can say what I'm saying to you till I'm blue in the face. If it isn't true, we'll get found out pretty fast. We really are thinking about the work all the time because we're not selling advertising. Ratings, while we love, you know, strong ratings, is actually not. They're not your metric. The most important metric. It's a metric. But Veep is no less a spectacular show because. It has a number somewhere around 4.5 million Tomb viewers a week, and another show may be above it or below it. Veep is a gorgeous piece of work, a quintessential HBO show, quite frankly, irrespective of how high the rating is. And so, no, if, The Wire is the ultimate example. Of the this. Wire is, a, is, is a, a, also a quintessential example. Now, Lightning in a Bottle, of course, is when you have. Uh, something that breaks through, you know, in, in every way. You have a huge audience hit, you have a cultural phenomenon, you have a critics phenomenon. But I think the key to the way we look at everything is we're looking to elevate our brand. So every choice we make, whether it's a documentary on Baltimore at the current moment, whether it's the Defiant Ones, which is the story of Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine as they built Interscope, whether it's the Deuce, David Simon's new show about the birth of the pointers, it's all about excellence. 
And what we're trying to do is make sure that every time we make a choice, it's elevating our brand. And while everything might not be your passion, you may not become an addict for everything, there is enough inside the HBO home that in my you, own experience one great show is worth the 10 you bucks are, a you month are or whatever going, i don't even you know you are going to want to stay here but let me let me ask you this and apply this lesson to the world of journalism which you obsess about yeah. uh, the what what is the lesson of the hbo experience for a for a for an industry that's vital to democracy, yep. arguably even more vital than HBO. What's the lesson for an industry that is trying to figure out um, a model that is sustainable, even if Facebook and Google eat all the ads, even well, if ads go away? We say all the time that smart and fun are not mutually exclusive. And I think the same is true in journalism. You don't need to have the biggest audience as long as people understand there's something of very high quality there. And I think journalism at this moment, places like the Atlantic, are, are holding up Western civilization because there need to be an, a, a collection of unimpeachable places where everybody understands that, well, they may be center-right or center-left. The integrity of the journalism, the integrity of the reportage is unimpeachable. Bring this back to earth a little bit i appreciate the it's true i know i appreciate the lofty analysis it's not lofty. Of, it's well true. it's all right we'll agree to disagree but i'm saying how do you convert that into paying customers in our business we have um, believed and i think uh, it's quite empirical that you can monetize smart you can monetize quality you can monetize engaging that's how we grow all of this, people say, oh my God, there's 500 hours of television being produced. There's so much stuff out there. And I say, yes, that's true. And there's some very good stuff out there that isn't on HBO. But there's a lot of mediocre stuff out there. And so brands matter more than ever because you know in your own life, you can't keep track of all the different shows that are out there. What you can keep track of is quality brands. So you know that HBO is a place where you can go for quality, right? And I would include Netflix in, in that, even though they're, you know, uh, putatively a competitor. But I've always said it is it is not about us or them. It is us and them. And we over-index in Netflix homes. They over-index in our homes. These are entertainment junkies. I think with all the journalistic noise out there, people want to know that there are brands that they can go to for thoughtful, rigorous thinking on really complicated issues um, where they can learn and they can evolve their thinking. And so, well, you're never going to have the same rate base, let's say, that you did 10 years ago. It seems to me that it's you're, a completely different business. It's a completely, completely different, different business. And when I go up on Atlantic.com to see what you guys are saying or doing every single day, you are engaging me and you are necessary to the informed citizen's appetite Right. on a daily and weekly basis. So it's a much longer and more expansive conversation how you monetize that. But if you deliver on your brand promise, which is there are a few places you know you can come for real illumination. And we, would be the argument I would make if I were you, we are one of those places. What, what, is, uh, what, is, the, what is the essence of brand defense? How do you make sure that your brand stays excellent? You deliver on 
the implicit promise of your brand. So, look, there are many, many other places for people to go to get television. And I actually think we're graded on a tougher curve. Because um, you're the first. Yeah, I, I think that when we get a B, we take a particular dig and we don't have any margin for error. We can take a bold risk and not necessarily hit it out of the park, but and people will show respect for that. But boy, over the course of time, if we aren't delivering on our brand promise, we're going to be punished and we're growing more than we've ever so grown. So when you year. see... Uh, a Handmaid's Tale yep. on another network. I say congratulations. It doesn't cause a pit. There's no pit in your no, stomach? Not at all. Do you think that we sit here and say, oh, The Handmaid's Tale, first-rate work, takes away from The Night Of, takes away from Big Little Lies, takes away from Westworld? From Do you Game wish Thrones, you bought it? Takes I mean, away from I mean, Pribble- Listen, we can't buy everything, okay? Well, so, actually, in point of fact, you could. No, you can't. Well, you got a lot of money. First of all, you can't buy everything because you cannot maintain the quality control. Well, this is the point. That, that That's like saying you can edit all the journalism that, f- that, that possibly could flow into the Atlantic's office. No, you can't. You don't have the time. It, you won't be able to maintain brand standards. So we're not here to do everything. We're here to do what we do really well. More is not better. Only better is better. I mean, we'd have to be silly to think that with 500 hours of scripted fare being produced on an annual basis, that we're going to have every good show. That's impossible. What we want is to make sure that our gallery is filled with stunning work. I send sincere thank, uh, uh, congratulatory notes to many of our so-called competitors when they, I know how hard this is. So when somebody does really well, whether it's Night Manager, whether it's a Handmaiden's Tale, I send Mike Hopkins a note. If it's a great piece of work on AMC, I send a note. If I'm a Homeland fan, I send David Nimmons a note. By the way, as soon as I finish the notes, I'm back reading our scripts, working with our team, and making sure that we're executing, playing our game to the fullest of our capacity. We do that, we're going to continue to win and grow. We're going to pause here for a moment to thank our sponsor. If there's one show out there in the last 20 years that you could well, have Mad had. Men. Mad Men. Because that, that was a mistake. Yes, it was. Absolutely. Not to take Mad Men. Absolutely. Unequivocally. It was one of your guys. It was an uh, unacceptable error on the part of the company. And I ran around using the Mad Men story um, as a case study in what I had thought had happened here, which was I thought a little bit of hubris had set in after Sopranos. I thought a little bit of arrogance had set in. And I think it was a very, very sobering moment um, for us because it showed how quickly um, the cultural conversation can shift. And I personally used it as a clarion call to, you know, wipe the hubris away and remember we're only as good as the people who come to work with us. We're not writing the shows. Talk about a recent controversy in which 
I don't know how to frame it. It was the envelope pushed too far on Confederate this no. project, or was it just not explained in a in a in a, in a very fraught political climate? Was it just not explained well? I'll tell you what intrigued us, and then I'll tell you what I wish we had done differently. I don't know whether you saw or your audience saw uh, the wonderful Vice segment on Charlottesville. Yes, um, I think everybody on the planet saw it. Well, good. Um, so what? was so powerful about that segment, in my judgment, is it held a mirror up um, to expose the thin veneer of civilization. Um, and I think the reason everybody found that so compelling is it showed that thin veneer. And it reminded us how vigilant we need to be as a country, um, how prevalent racism and different manifestations of racism in the extreme form that you saw in the show and in more subtle forms are still in American society. And Casey and my understanding of what the team was thinking about is how to explore that thin veneer of civilization. How it would be executed, what it would look like in script form, this would come later. What I wish we had done differently is not tried to explain a very complicated and nuanced subject in a two-page press release. Before the writers and the creators had fully fleshed out how they were going to dilate on this kernel of an idea. And so we tried to explain it in a two-page press release and people brought to it and imputed to it all kinds of things. It's true. And people did write about it or tweet about they it. They wrote about as it, if, it as if, as if they had seen the show. As if the show were on. The backlash to HBO's upcoming slave drama Confederate hit new heights on Sunday evening as a Twitter campaign against the show hit number Look, two. We have a long history at HBO of tackling issues of civil liberties and civil rights and American history and world history. We have done documentaries and movies, um, which are uh, acknowledged as some some of the best historical films on these subjects, I can promise you that this network would not do anything um, on an issue that is this sensitive that would not be in the service of a greater understanding and illumination of what I just described. So I would just wait and um, I don't think we're wait before let, passing judgment. Wait before passing judgment. Wow, you don't really understand the Twitter age, do you? <laughs> the uh, I remember when you were doing Big Love. I think right. Mm -hmm. You shopped that intensively with the Mormon community. I, I mean, I think didn't you? Well, you, the the Mormon community didn't know what it was. They thought it was going to be a trivialization of of the sacredness of their heritage. And all we said to them was, and I think we proved right. No, actually, we're, we're going to be making the point in here that the community, the mainstream community, is opposed to this vigorously. It is outlawed. And that this group, who's in the show, the, the Bill Paxton family, is living as outliers because they are practicing police. Right, right. And I, I'm not telling you that the Mormon community was going to, you know, award the show. <laughs> but um, I think they came to see that we were true to that. Right. Um, description. Talk about one more, and then we'll go to Shimon Perez. but talk about one more culturally fraught moment. Um, and it's Can't that... You got anything you want to celebrate on the HBO uh, docket, or are we just talking about fraught? I just do fraught. mostly fraught. fraught. You, what, you, you don't like know do that fraught I do fraught? No, do another fraught, and then we'll do a celebration. We'll get to the 29 Emmys? I think you just did. All right, good. 
the fraught moment, this issue of male behavior, yeah. sexual harassment. I mean, give me your cultural analysis of what's going on. Are we at a rupture in relations between the genders in the workplace? And talk about your corporate culture and how it responds to these kind of challenges. Listen, I can only speak to, on my watch, not only is there zero tolerance inside the buildings, but I think it, you could, it violates every bit of our ethos. How do companies go sideways on this? I think people turn a blind eye to a story or two. They think it's anomalous. And that is the slippery slope because the fish stinks from the head and culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what I mean by that is if you don't have a healthy culture, I don't care how good your strategy is. You can't have a good strategy. You are, well, you, you can have a good strategy, but if your culture isn't healthy, you can't good, execute luck, a good, strategy. good luck executing it as effectively and as efficiently. And if, you, if your strategy needs work, but your culture's healthy, that culture will help correct your strategy. There is absolutely mm. no reason why you cannot be fiercely competitive and not have manners. And I think when manners get dropped, there is this overlay in a lot of these cases between people who are generically assholes and who have sex harassment issues. Yeah. And that's what we've seen so far. There is no reason. Um, we're a very competitive place, but there is never an excuse for disrespect. Um, I'm not just talking about sexual harassment. There's no, there's no excuse for disrespect inside a company. I won't tolerate it. The team won't tolerate it. Um, you can be clear, you can be direct, you can be critical, but you need to be respectful. Right. All right, I'm going to give you a gimme. What are you excited about at HBO? So no, 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 and I ask actually a practical question. I don't even know what show to watch anymore. I don't have any time, so I only can watch one show at a time, and even right. then I'm not really watching a show. Right. So well, what, what am I supposed to watch in the next me, year? Succession is coming kind of show run by Jesse Armstrong, who is a very brilliant... And it's uh, not at all Murdochian. Well, it's metaphorically many things. Um, okay. This particular potentate happens to be Canadian. He's turning 80 years old. He's meant to turn his company over to his second oldest son. It's Faustian deals. It's power. It's family. It's fathers and sons. We're very excited about it. Brian Cox plays the lead. Um, Adam McKay directed the pilot. Frank Rich is producing... We have very, very high hopes for it. And I think it's We have a movie with Al Pacino on Joe Paterno coming, uh, another kind of classic HBO film, um, a show we're making called Lovecraft, written by Misha Green, which is a kind of uh, horror drama set in the 1950s, which um, we have very, very high hopes for. Damon Lindelof coming back uh, with Watchmen. This, um, are you going to cry, though, have, when Game of Thrones ends? Well, look, there's five prequels that are... Uh, uh, Five, five different teams writing prequels. Um, I have read two of the concept papers. They're both fantastic. We will pick one. The key to our future is the quality of talent that we have the privilege of working with and that thankfully are lined up to want to work with us. The best people in our business love to work here. There's just this surfeit of amazingly gifted people um, who want to bring their work to HBO. On the business side, we've just created more opportunities, more options for consumers to get HBO. And they can watch HBO on whatever device they choose. 
with whatever subscription they have. And millennials and, and even aging boomers like me, are you an aging boomer? I am ageless. I'm an, I'm an aging boomer. Find ourselves watching on tablets, on smartphones. And so I've never once watched a show on a phone yet. I have a feeling it's coming. But you know, if you think about it, if you miss John Oliver and you happen to be sitting at lunch and you have HBO Go or HBO Now, you can catch up on John Oliver. Um, you might not want to watch Thrones on your phone, but <laughs> um, technology has always been a great, of great service to HBO. As we emerge with HBO Go, we have created optionality for our customer. And I think as technology evolves, um, we can continue to grow. And what do we do with that growth? We invest it. Right. Uh, this is the important part. Do you really want me to do this? Yes. Right. Tell me the story. We both miss Shimon Perez. I think it's fair to say yep. we thought he was a smart man and a good man and was the only, optimist, was a, only optimist in the Middle East. He and, was a transcendent figure on the world stage. So the story is that the then consul general in New York, uh, Ido Arioni, um, asked whether I would host a dinner for the president when he was here. And I said it would, my wife and I, it would be our pleasure, um, honored. I said to Ido, you know, who do you think he wants to come? And Ido thought, well, let's call, let's set up a call and we'll ask the president who he'd like. So we arranged the call and I said, Mr. President, who would you like uh, to come? Would you like uh, David Remnick, you know, the editor of uh, The New Yorker? Would you, uh, would you like Jeff Goldberg, you know, with a noted and eminent uh, American journalist? Uh, would you like the president of CNN, Jeff. So who would you like to come? And just kind of without missing a beat, he said, you know, uh, those people are fine, but I like the girl from the sex and the city. <laughs> and I said, oh, Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker would be good to have. And I said, all right, well, I'm sure that she and her husband. And by Matthew, the way, he's about 104 at the time. All yeah, right. at the time he was 80. And then, so that's completely fine. Then. So I said to him, "All right, you know that's fine. Um, would you like Tom Friedman, Fareed Zakaria? You know, <laughs> which public intellectual we can talk about the future of Israel? I don't know. They all know Seinfeld." <laughs> I said, "Yes." As a matter of fact, I, I like Seinfeld to come. That's uh, big old Seinfeld. So when I walked into my own home, that evening very excited he was already there um and there was an israeli film crew there that of course was going to film him with sarah jessica and with jerry and uh at the beginning we said to him well you know we're so honored you're here and talk about uh, the history of israel and uh and he said before we begun how many seasons of the sex and the city will continue and when will hbo Come to Israel, and those were his fundamental questions. It's good that he had uh, his, the priorities. So it was. It ended up being a, a wonderful, memorable evening. But those were his priorities. Richard, it's a pleasure to have you on the Jeffrey, big podcast. It's an honor to do the podcast. Thank you for being a friend of the Atlantic. Keep doing what you're doing, and um, we'll try to keep doing what we're doing. And quality, I think. And the Republic uh, will be saved. The Republic. Um, Fortunately, our institutions are stronger than any particular moment. Well put.
Thank, Thank you, Richard. Pleasure. The Atlantic Interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Kim Lau. If you like what you're hearing, please review us in Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe, that is, if you like this, and share this episode with a friend. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and we'll have more next week.